Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. With the end of the Mantuan inheritance, this week we move on to the Edict of Restitution, which is which happened during this whole Mantuan inheritance issue. This had also caused major backlash, but we'll get into that more as we progress. The Edict of Restitution was an attempt to create stability and peace, especially in the aftermath of the Danish invasion of the HRE, but it would only create issues. The idea was, is it would use the true interpretation, heavy air quotes, of the Peace of Augsburg through the creation of a legal framework to enforce that decision. It was supposed to solve existing issues in the empire in the aftermath of the defeat of the Danish, and to shore up Austrian power and influence, but it did not because... Effectively, they were trying to seal Pandora's box again, which included controversial land transfers, more military demands, and more financial contributions from the members of the empire. It was bad enough that even the Catholics were suspicious of this. And the fact is that when Catholics are saying, hmm, this might be suspicious, that's not a good sign, even if it was supposedly only targeting the Protestants. The edict was also tied to the general re-Catholization, which I covered before, and it only caused people to become more polarized by these methods to try to reassert Catholic power influence. Some of the land was recovered by troops and use of force, but most of the restitution was requested by either the former owners of the land or their heirs. A bunch of them were bishoprics, so people who were taught or influenced by people who ran those bishoprics, etc., would request that land back. The Danish war had delayed the re-Catholization process, but with their defeat, the process continued on full steam ahead, for good or for ill. Many Catholics at this time did see this as a time to strike at the Protestants. There was the fact that they kept winning the wars against the Protestants, and things like La Rochelle happening, which showed that this must be a sign from God that they were supposed to win, all that sort of religious talk, where success in battle showed religious favor, not uncommon at the time on both sides, or for Christianity in general, or throughout human history, I would say, actually. Ferdinand's confessor, William Lambermani, especially believed in this edict, which encouraged Ferdinand to put this edict forward. This confessor was even more devout than Ferdinand, as he was the more fundamental Jesuit-educated man, and he wanted to assert Catholic superiority. And keep in mind, Ferdinand was a very devout Catholic and militant at times. This also used the idea that the wars against these various Protestant nations and rebellions was a holy war to fight the Protestant plague, which the first step of that in a legal framework would be giving back the Catholics their land that they lost in the 16th century. And the whole issue here is that it combined politics and religion, which made it hard to distinguish what the real root was at the time. Which wasn't uncommon at the time, as religion and politics were tied together in many ways. In some cases, you could sort of determine if it was more politics or religion, but especially this time, they were inexplicably tied to each other. But in this issue, the militant Catholicism complemented the political motives of many people who supported this new edict, as this would give them more land, give the church more influence, the Pope push back against the Protestant problem, that whole deal. But in spite of that, that, many senior clergy, even in the courts of the Austrians, distanced themselves from this plan, saying restraint was needed and this is a step too far. They must have realized that either they could no longer strike the Protestants like before, as the Protestants had been established for a century or so at least at this point, so they were already established and it was hard to root out a religion like this. It's not like Catharism or, or the Hussites. Most of the clergy just wanted the land back, but they didn't want to eliminate Protestantism as they knew that this was going to cause problems or just was not going to work out in the long term. And people like Maximilian urged that only those backed by the 1530 
version of Augsburg could benefit from the 1555 version of it. This was mainly because it would exclude Calvinists and Frederick V, who in theory could take back the title that Maximilian now held, and this decision, based on that one, would ensure that he couldn't try to claim back his princedom. Others at this time thought this was just going to be some new guidelines the court reused to deal with decisions, so they let the emperor devise the text, not knowing that in hindsight this was a mistake. They thought it would just be sort of steps in how one should decide debates on land restitution, etc., on a case-by-case basis. The document was started on January 1628, and the Protestants tried to ask for help slash give advice about it, but as the governing council in Austria was a mix of opinions at this time. It must be said that both Catholics and Protestants were given voice to help determine what was going on with it, but the Jesuits, especially the militant ones, had more influence than the Protestants, so they pushed in their favor, especially with the leader of the council using a popular theologian's argument favoring the extreme Catholic opinion on the Peace of Augsburg, which was more along the lines of reducing the rights of Protestants and who was considered heretics and who wasn't. The final document was officially issued March 25th, 1629, and the rest of the empire reacted accordingly. And for this, I'm going to read a section of the document. I'll read snippets of it, not the whole thing. It's a longish document. We, Ferdinand II, by the grace of God, elected Roman emperor, etc., offer our friendship, grace, and all goodwill to all, and every elector, prince, and all others of our in the empire subjects and the faithful followers, regardless of dignity, estate, or being, it is without question all too well known that our beloved fatherland, the German nation, has long suffered from damaging disagreements and destruction. So it follows incontrovertibly that those immediate bishoprics and monasteries that were confiscated not before, but only after and since the religious peace, are excluded, and that the followers of the Augsburg confession have no right to reform those or confiscate them. On the contrary, this is not allowed, and because it has happened, the injured party are free to exercise the rights and justice. And do not be misled by the Article 15 of the Religious Peace that allows the followers of the Augsburg Confession their belief, ceremonies, and church ordinances that they have established or may establish in their principalities, lands, and lordships. This has not given them the power to also reform monasteries within those lands. Although such monasteries are obliged to show due respect in worldly matters, they have nothing to do with these lands and lordships in terms of their foundation and spiritual matters and belong as before to God and the church. Because of this, they are free and exempt from the secular territory and government. And a little later on in the thing, so we are determined for the realization of both the religious and profane peace to dispatch our imperial commissioners into the empire, to reclaim all the archbishoprics, bishoprics, prelacies, monasteries, ecclesiarchal property, hospitals and endowments which the Catholics had possessed at the time of the Treaty of Passau, and of which they were illegally deprived, and put all of these Catholics' foundations and endowments duly qualified persons so that each may get his proper due without unnecessary delay. We hereby declare the religious peace refers to only the Augsburg Confession as it was submitted to our ancestor Charles V on June 25th, 1530, and that all other documents and sects, whatever names they may have, not included in the peace, are forbidden and cannot be tolerated. We therefore command to all and everyone under punishment from religious and public peace that they shall at once cease opposing our ordinances and carry it out in their lands and territories, and also assist our commissioners, such as holding the archbishoprics and bishoprics, prelacies, monasteries, hospitals, benefices, and other ecclesiastical property, shall forthwith vacate them and return and deliver them to our imperial commissioners with all their appurtenances. 
Should the Knights have this out behest, they will not only expose themselves on the ground of notorious disobedience to the Imperial ban under the religious and public peace, and to the immediate loss of all their privileges and rights without further sentence or condemnation, but to the inevitable real execution of that order and to be disdained by force. We mean this seriously. Given in our city, Vienna, the 6th of March in the year 1629, the 10th year of our reign in the Empire, the 11th in Hungary, and the 12th in Bohemia. End the section. So, while I find it funny that we mean this seriously was kind of a funny line, this was definitely a targeted thing against the Protestants more than any Catholic. And this was going to be a sweeping gesture. As unlike what most expected, which was just that the court could decide on a case-by-case basis, this was written as a decisive and defensive edict. The document favored the extreme Jesuit and Catholic interpretation, even if the original was intentionally vague and didn't try to favor one side, aka tried to be more moderate and save face to the Protestants. Based on this interpretation, the Calvinists were no longer protected from religious tolerance, and all the land had to be given back that had been taken since 1552, including bishoprics. Once again, this was a sweeping gesture the emperor debated at actually having. This was a sweeping gesture the emperor was debated at actually having, as the constitution of the HRE made determining who had the rights hard, which was highlighted in the massive authority structure within the HRE, which made it hard to determine who had rights to decide what, how much authority they had on your land. HRE was a mess of an empire, if you can call that one, which many didn't, especially in later centuries. The edict was then put into place, and the system was set up to try to assert the new decision. The main targets of this were much of the remaining Calvinists and other Protestants in the northern bishoprics, mainly in Lower Saxony, Franconia, and Wurttemberg. Commissioners were sent to make sure it happens, which is usually a local prince, with a Habsburg official and army officers to ensure that this was done. People like Tilly and Wallerstein were tapped to use force, if needed, to get the property back. The main losers were the the main losers in the north were the Danish, the Galefs, and those in Württemberg, where fifty monasteries were taken from them, which was about a third of all the income of those area. Despite the property being taken not as extreme as some assumed it would, many realized this was not going to create peace. The mayor of Magdeburg even said that they were unlikely to see peace in their time based on this. The Protestants in the Swiss Confederacy also feared that they'd be targeted next, thinking that the Imperial troops that were engaged at Mantua would come to attack them to enforce these rights. The Pope's response to this was a carefully worded response. He said, Heresy will have learned that the gates of hell do not prevail against the church and the arms of the powerful Austrians. However, he could not openly endorse them, due to meaning that he had to recognize the peace of Augsburg, which he couldn't do because that would diminish Catholic power and recognize Protestants. The Pope was also not a fan of the fact that he had not been asked to send his own spiritual advisors, which showed that Ferdinand regarded this as a judicial thing, primarily, but not a spiritual thing, even if it said so in the document. But And there were allies of Ferdinand who actually opposed this edict. The first one was the Spanish, who saw that keeping peace with the German Lutherans and Calvinists would help maintain peace in the empire, and would make sure that they could be allies against the French in case the French attacked the empire, as well as support for the Spanish against the Dutch. And they, along with many clergy members within the Austrian court, tried to get the confessor I mentioned earlier out of his position, which did fail, and and the clergy who did speak against it knew that this was a short-sighted goal and that this would only cause problems. I personally believe that this edict was more influenced by religion than politics, if you want my opinion on this. Ferdinand was a devout Catholic 
and militant at times, even if he showed more moderation before. But I chalk that up to the fact that he was under more stress. He wasn't exactly winning all the time, or at least as much as he could. But now that he beat the Danish, which was an actual major Protestant country at the time, he had more legs in than or at least he thought he did. So it's not necessarily that power corrupts. It's power shows who you are truly once you have it, especially given free reign. It's obvious in hindsight that this is a bad move, seeing as it nothing but antagonized those who hadn't rebelled, as much of the people who had rebelled had already had their property taken away, and this was just attacking people who were loyal to the Empire, or at least nominally loyal to the Emperor and the HRE. The fact that other Catholics saw this was a mistake also showed how Ferdinand wasn't thinking long-term, or at least thinking idealistically, about the response. The Protestants hadn't reacted to losing their rights before, so why would this be any different? Many worried the Swedes were going to attack them, and antagonizing the Protestants would just encourage many of these Protestants to call out for help, especially seeing the quality of the Swedish army as we have talked about before, and we will see later. Short-sighted plans can definitely lead to long-term damage, and this edict was definitely that. However, this will have to be finished another week, as this was more of a dense topic than I thought it was going to be. But next week, we will see how it was implemented and the Protestant reaction to the enforcement. Thank you for listening in, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast. The social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. Reminder that I have Patreon, and to review and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>